I think it's a, it's a really important skill to have. And even if you don't become a coder or a technologist, um, being able to understand that thought process is really important. Welcome to Lawagon Live. Today we have Melinda Roylet from Square speaking to us. Melinda is Square's head of Europe, growing the region since 2018, after a 10-year stint at PayPal. She started her career as a lawyer, then was a consultant for BCG, and is now an expert in card payments and fintech. Melinda's also been included in Management Today's 35 Women to Watch in Business Under 35 Years Old. She's a complete power woman, so we hope you enjoy the podcast on her career so far and the payments industry. I probably am dating myself a bit, but um, during the 80s, um, I used to watch this television show with my mum. It was called um, L.A. Law, and uh, it's full of all these, like, glamorous, like, you know, people in the 80s, like, driving around cars and, and being lawyers. And so I thought, oh, that sounds really cool. Um, I might do law, actually. And so I actually started off um, studying law and, and working as a lawyer. Um, I don't know if any of you have come from coding, you know, from a lit law degree, and it's, uh, it's lots of good things to say about, you know, being in the legal profession. But for me, I just felt it was very back-end. I remember looking at some contracts and being very excited about it. Like, one was for the securitization of a Malaysian theme park. And I'm like, oh, this is really cool. We're going to buy all these rides and have all these customer numbers. And it was like, oh, no, this is the contractual terms that you need to draft up into securitization documents. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't do that. And so... I had some friends who were working uh, in consulting in um, McKinsey and Boston Consulting Group um, and they said you should do that like it's really fun get a lot of different experiences and so um, so I um, didn't fulfill being a lawyer I didn't um, finish the last stages of that and ended up going into uh, consulting um, which was really fun as well um, more, much more fun than law but um, it was very much working 80 hours a week and uh, uh, you know having to live in hotels and you know when you're 23 that's like not the most fun thing in the world. Uh, you learn a lot of skills as a consultant. You learn um, how to, you know, write decks and like structure arguments and to project manage like big, um, big projects. But um, you don't, again, you're not really the person doing things. You're not really the person leading anything or getting stuff done. It's a very kind of theoretical advisor role. And so I decided that that wasn't for me either. And um, during my mid-20s, um, like a lot of Australians uh, in, in their mid-20s, decided I want to come to, wanted to come to the UK and to Europe um, for, you know, as fun as, as much as personal reasons. So came across in my mid-20s and uh, went to all the festivals, like uh, running with the bulls and like St. Patrick's Day and everything, which was quite fun. Um, ended up finding a job um, in the cards and payments team at um, Lloyd's TSB, which it was back then. Um, and yeah, and we did a lot of cool things. We launched new credit cards, um, did as much cool stuff as you can do in a big UK retail bank. Um, and then my boss, like lots of the ways that you people probably have come to this position in life or will go on through other, to find other jobs, it's all through your network of people. And so I was working at Lloyd's for two years and my boss at the time got the offer to go to PayPal um, and set up their financial services team. And I said to him, well, I think that sounds really fun. Can I come? And he's like, yeah, cool, okay. And so I joined at PayPal um, in 2008. And, and then I don't, don't think it had the brand name or no one really knew much about it. Um, but it had been established in the UK a few years before. And it was very much like being a startup there. On the first day, he said, oh, your role is this. Like, you know, you're going to manage these two products, product manager for these pro products. And I was like, okay, after three days, was well, actually we just figured out the US have launched invoices and express checkout. Like, they didn't tell us. Like, communication is always difficult in big US companies. But we've got these products now. Can you manage them? And so I was like, okay, cool. And then so after a while, we were just doubling every year. And so it was pretty cool that my job doubled 
um, without me having to do much, right? And so that's pretty cool. And then, um, yeah, PayPal um, helped me with uh, further education, like a lot of you guys are doing. I did um, an executive MBA, which involved traveling between uh, London and New York um, and getting degrees from both Columbia and London Business School. I remember my boss, another boss by then, saying to me, Melinda, I think you should do this MBA. And I was like, well, I feel really stressed and working too hard and I don't think I can do any more study in addition to working. And he's like, you get to go to New York every second month. So I was like, <laughs> yes, like, that right, sounds amazing. Right. <laughs> so I did that for a bit. And then when I came back, um, I said, look, I've been in this job in PayPal for six years. Um, is there anything else I can do in terms of, you know, what, what's my next career um, move? And I'd been head of product, actually, probably very close to a lot of people's hearts. And so my job was basically to um, use charm, persuasion, uh, influence to get the US product teams uh, and developers to build things for the UK market, um, which is uh, very challenging because they're in Silicon Valley and they see every day everything going on there. And so the response is to build things that are fending off the competitors and making you stronger in the US. And But we had to go like, hey, we need stuff in the UK as well. We need things in Germany. Like talk to the Russia's a growing market, Turkey's a growing market, and really having to advocate um, for the teams to, to build out those products. And so, uh, yeah, so when I came back from business school, um, I was offered the role to look after small and medium business um, in Luxembourg, which was very fun. And um, I also looked after an acquisition of a company. A lot of you guys might know Braintree. I don't know if you're using it in your um, developer, uh, your developer classes, but um, PayPal really um, knew that it had some with Stripe emerging and even Square had to really invest more in more developer-facing um, products and developer-friendly products. And so Braintree's been a great acquisition that PayPal have made. So learned a lot about um, you know, MSDKs and uh, uh, those type of uh, products that you guys are probably working with every day. As part of that and then uh, after a while Square basically sent me a LinkedIn message and said hey it'd be um, great if you could talk to us about the role of heading up Europe and so I spoke to them and uh, yeah it was a really great opportunity you know as you were saying Royce to be kind of like owning a startup but backed by a 30 billion dollar Jack Dorsey you know, company and every day it's really fun like you know Taisha's there and you know we uh, we're running out of space in our UK office and so like lots of startups uh, we're having to get like new co-working space uh, in Dublin. We only have car park spaces. I have to sort that out. So it's fun to be the general manager to be doing everything from you know the strategy you know to Jack to you know figuring out you know how do we get more toilets in the in the UK office. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it's been really fun. Yeah. No. What a path. I mean, I've heard that PayPal had some cultural idiosyncrasies set by Peter Thiel and the original founding team, such as like Peter would only you know, allow each manager to focus on one task at once. Did any of those cultural idiosyncrasies apply to you? And did you take any of them to Square when you build out your teams? Uh, no, I never heard of that, actually. I think we, um, I get asked a lot, do I know Elon Musk or do I know <laughs> Peter Thiel? Like, yeah, I wish. Um, and so, uh, no, I don't, I, I think we were a bit later. So I think that era was probably about seven years or something before we all joined. So PayPal was a pretty reasonable company. Um, when I joined, even if quite small in the UK. And so, um, no, we didn't have that. And actually, as we were getting bigger, by the time I left PayPal, we were billions of dollars of, of revenue in Europe. And like any big companies, um, you, you get like a big matrix environment. So you get, you get country managers who are in charge, but then you get people 
who were in charge of like me. I was in charge of SMB, but then there's countries. And so often you get a lot of people doing the same thing and you have to really manage this matrix to make sure you don't have that. So that would have been a good lesson, actually. Maybe we should adopt that as square, one person, one thing. But um, no, we didn't have that, unfortunately. I mean, on that topic, though, how have you approached the creation of the company culture uh, for Square, now that you are a team of 26 or 27 and expanding? Yeah, no, um, it's a lot easier, I guess, um, at, at this stage. But I think um, there's a few things. I think, um, firstly, we're very customer-oriented. And you can kind of say that, but, like, it's it's really true. Like, the team are incredibly customer-oriented. I mean, I have um, I get so excited when I see Square sellers. There's on Broadway Market, um, the poor guy, like, he sells Compassion Kombucha is the name of the company. And uh, I went to buy some and he turned around, and he had a square reader. I jumped over like the, the cart, they're like hugging him. I'm like, oh my God, that's so cool. Um, I'm like getting selfies with him and sticking them on our it's a social media account. Like it's very, it's very connected. Like when you're small and starting out, every seller matters. And um, you know, when I've been at other bigger companies, like it's customers are more like numbers in spreadsheets because you manage managing them across 120 geographies and across you know, millions and millions of PayPal. And so it's, it's, we tried a lot, but it's harder to get that connection with sellers. And so that's something we really quiz people on when they join Square. It's like, well, why do you want to join Square? It's not because you don't like your existing company, but are you driven? Are you mission driven? Do you want to be here to help sellers and really making sure that's part of the interview process? Um, it's also, we, I, I use something called the lunch test. And so I remember at um, one of my other companies, I had a manager and he would hire, he was like, he just hired terrible people. And like, but he would always like figure out they were terrible a few months later and then we'd go to a pub lunch or something. You'd see him like move away and sit at the other side. Like, and so it's like, do you want to hire someone who not only can do the job, but you want to have lunch with, right? And so I think that's important as well, so. Interesting. And so as you're building out your company culture and I think I saw that in 2017, only 4% of Square's revenues were international. Right, you have this massive opportunity ahead of you. Uh, how are you guys focusing on like, initially finding your niche and scaling over the coming years? Uh, yeah, no, I think um, so Square really started as a little white reader. A lot of you have probably gone to America, you know, have seen it. It very much was um, Jack wanting to buy a vase from an artisan friend. And uh, I think the vase was $2,000 and he just thought it was crazy. Hey, everyone's got these computers in their in their pockets, really. Like how, do, how come, you know, we can't accept card payments? And, and really they created the market from that, like this white reader. And, you know, from that they built an ecosystem of products out, um, which was pretty amazing and now in the UK Square does everything from lending to e-commerce um, you know it's, uh, consumer installments payroll this whole ecosystem of things and I think as we're thinking in Europe it's been um, very interesting even though that reader is at the heart and soul of everything we do um, you know what are all these other things that we can bring to market um, maybe much quicker than we can the reader so say for example if you look at companies like Stripe or if you look at even PayPal they've been able to get a lot of markets very quickly you know using um, you know e-commerce and and these type of like products right because they're much easier logistically to deliver into markets you don't have hardware you don't have inventory and so I think when we're really thinking about um, international expansion our existing markets it's like how do we bring more of that um, ecosystem quicker uh, and then maybe follow with the, the square reader so if you look at our product roadmap this year we've launched an invoices app in the UK we've launched like online store builder in the UK um, we've launched um, a whole lot of um, pricing work in the UK so how do we get 
all that goodness and functionality out to the markets as well as the reader. And I think that's really helping us expand more. So what's the, when you guys are thinking about your products or expansion, kind of what's the kind of narrow, thin, thin wedge of entry strategy and then following in with the harder things then? Fascinating. And what countries after the UK do you think are the most fertile for Square's expansion? Uh, there's a lot of countries uh, globally. So I think uh, that's one of our challenges, right? Um, like there's demand from everywhere. And so we always go to conferences and people asking where, uh, you know, so we at the moment we're very focused on our existing four countries. Um, so we're in Canada, Australia, uh, Japan and the UK. And um, really uh, bedding down and bringing all that product ecosystem um, to all of those markets. So. Um, you know, in, in many markets globally, we you know, need to launch payroll and capital and, and, and all the virtual terminal. We're launching um, new hardware. We've just launched a product called Terminal in the US and it's going to be exciting to bring that to the rest of the world. So, yeah, so um, for the moment, yeah, really just very much focused on winning the UK. So you have some really interesting experience as, as from a, a competitor, PayPal, moving to Square and also on a company that focused primarily on hardware to begin. You know, from your experience, how would you approach creating the, the viral growth, but with a hardware product? In terms of... Spreading so, it to customers, and just like, because a software product obviously doesn't have the variable cost. Yeah. And so how do you, for hardware, how do you all approach it at Square in terms of distribution when just say, you know, small businesses in Germany or Luxembourg might not know mm. uh, about Square as a product? Yeah, well, I think the key thing is uh, brand awareness. And so um, when we launched in, uh, it was 20, it was two years we've just uh, turned to in the UK, um, I think there was a um, perception that because Square was so known in the US, like when you walk in, you get off the plane in America, a taxi driver has a Square reader, every coffee shop has a Square reader. You walk down like near our office in San Francisco, like the whole area is, you know, is Square. And so I think it was um, the company when they launched in the UK, um, we thought a lot of that brands, you know, might carry across. But the UK is, you know, one of the most sophisticated um, and and competitive financial services markets in the world. And so we've really been uh, working since then on building our brand in the UK. And so one of the things that um, has worked really well for us has been advertising and just like really old school. Like you think of a technology company and cutting edge technology, but if you look at the people that we're trying to um, provide this technology to, a lot of them are like you know, small businesses, like quasi-consumer people, and they're watching television and they're listening to the radio and they're uh, looking, um, you know, they see ads on the tube and on buses. They're not necessarily looking at digital display ads or like, you know, searching for things online. And so a big part of our strategy has been to invest in above-the-line advertising, um, if you, like, we've just gone on TV recently again, like I think it was yesterday, um, you can see our Square and Fair commercial. And so that's been really powerful for us in building brand awareness, uh, for, particularly for our hardware. Um, radio, yeah, um, just like, you know, kind of marrying the new markets or the new media approach and advertising. So still do on, uh, online advertising, but really complementing that with like brand awareness. And so it's the real world and the, the new world kind of merging together. It's interesting. What's old is new. <laughs> and I imagine that many of your small business owners you know, aren't millennials. I mean, mm. many probably are, but there's probably a demographic which is a bit older as well. Do you have a user education problem or how do you approach that when onboarding new users that might be in their 50s or... Etc.? Yeah, no, it's really, um, it's really quite difficult and like a challenge that we're very much focused on. And so um, I was just up um, in, uh, in Northern England, actually, a few weeks ago and... Uh, 
and we held a workshop basically um, with um, Helen Goodman, MP, a lot of her constituency to like bring Square, the message of Square to the local community. And there was a woman I was trying to help and she didn't have a smartphone. She didn't like, and, and the, the challenge for her was how do I get the smartphone and how do I connect the reader and things that we think are quite intuitive actually. It was quite foreign to her. I spent most of the time trying to help her how she would get an iPhone. Yeah, you know, and, and then for her, that's a lot of money, like 300, 400 to even get a reconditioned iPhone. I mean, a lot of these businesses are, are really doing it difficult. So it is a challenge. I mean, we've been working in partnership with a number of communities. Um, Hollywell is the one we're known um, famously for. We've got a lot of publicity about that in the BBC, New York Times, but we've gone into these communities and uh, really helped them um, in partnership with the government and really help them um, bring digital skills training. So we the head of marketing do a digital skills workshop. We give away free readers. And so, and you find this like really a uh, community effect and uh, it really kind of builds on each other. So now Hollywell basically it had no card acceptance. The high street was like really doing it tough. And so after we were asked by the MP to come and help, um, we came in and yeah, and now 90% of the Hollywell high street accepts credit cards. Not only all from us, but I think, you know, once you get a few people accepting cards, um, you know, the impact is, um, it has gets a lot of velocity. I mean, if I think of one of our favourite sellers we have, his name's Ted and he's a barber in Hollywell and he charges £6 for his haircuts. And he was apparently one of the people who were the fiercest, like, detractors of square and credit cards. He said to the team, you know, why would I need this? I only charge £6 for my haircuts. It's crazy. I don't need a card machine. And I don't know, it was before my time, and I managed to get him get him one and get him set up. And now he's one of our biggest advocates. And he kind of admits, yeah, actually, a lot of people used to pretend to go to the ATM and run away and never come back. And, you know, he, <laughs> um, but yeah, he's, he's older and he's figured it out. So um, yeah, I think, you know, if people, it's, it's a community and people have other people to go to, that can help as well, so. Interesting, so after you onboard these users, mm -hmm. what is your vision for the ecosystem that you'll build to keep them within the ecosystem? I've heard that in the United States, you guys launched banking through Square Capital mm. and payroll and other services. Like, What's mm. your vision for here in Europe? Yeah, well, we want to really be the center of, of these uh, sellers' financial lives. And so, uh, you know, really being able to help them grow their business. And we're one of the few companies that's really invested in growing a business because if we have a business and we're doing the card processing for them, we can give them a loan that further helps grow their business. You know, that helps them like process more cards. So, you know, it's all quite a virtuous cycle as opposed to say a bank or like a lender who's coming in and their only initiative or their only incentive is to give them a big line of credit with a high interest rate and make sure they pay it off. Like we do that virtuous circle and then we can use the data to see, okay, well, you're processing this amount of money in terms of cards, even if you don't have a credit record or, uh, you know, the bank won't give you a line of credit, we can give you a credit because we have that information on you. So using all that to create a virtual circle and then, hey, they use the Square app builder or they use the Square um, store and then we can see their online um, processing transactions and offline, then we can even give them more credit and a better rate, which further grows the business. So it's all very much a mutually enforcing ecosystem. And then on the consumer side, um, we've made our first forays into kind of democratizing financial services there with our cash app. So I don't know if you've seen that in the US, um, it's very successful. 
Uh, I think it's even got more downloads than Venmo um, at the moment, uh, but really revolutionising consumer finance there. So starting with being able to send money to each other like very quickly, but then building on consumer financial services on that basis. So yeah, I mean, a lot going on. Yeah. A lot. Mm. And how do you how do you focus it for your team? Because obviously you're the tip of the spear. And how do you, I guess, clarify the company vision and your key goals every day when you have so many products in the ecosystem? Yeah, well, um, I think you've got to set a goal. And so um, one of the things I did, I don't know, my first week in uh, San Francisco, my first week at Square, I had to be in San Francisco. And so I think during that week, my boss, who um, is based in the States, he said to me, you've got to commit to a goal to the business. And so I was like, oh, okay. He's like, I think, yeah, maybe you could double the business next year. And then like in three years, it should be 10x. And I was like, oh, it sounds okay, I guess, given the, given the trends. And so I committed to that uh, pretty early on. So, and I think we have this goal, uh, which is quite cool. And, um, you know, everyone knows what it is. Um, and we're all mobilised around that. And so what are the things that will get us to the goal? And so trying to strip out a lot of the things that we might have done before, which um, might have been, um, you know, nice things to do. Like, I think we, we partnered with um, some consumer festivals. And so we've kind of dialed that down a bit. Like, do we want to have Square out there, you know, helping sellers and helping the Ted the Barber? Is that where we, saw, where we put energy? Or do we want to be processing payments for a lot of drunk, you know, 23-year-olds in a, in a field as amazing as that is? Um, and so, you know, just like really focusing on, um, you know, what the priorities are for growing the business. I think at this stage of our development, we're very keen to, because the Square hardware is very, I mean, it's quite beautiful. I mean, in terms of as beautiful as payments processing, you know, hardware can be. And so we've got a lot of designers, um, ex-Apple, you can, you can tell they've brought that Apple aesthetic to a lot of, of what we do. And so the more we can actually get um, the Square hardware into the market and people can see it and use it. If you think of the kombucha seller or other people in Broadway market. And so we try to get, just get it out there. So that's a big part of our strategy as well. So. Yeah, no, I think iZettle are a great competitor. Um, you know, they, they came to the market, you know, many years before Square and really, um, you know, have, have done a great job in signing up lots of customers. Uh, I think the, the difference is that um, Square, I guess it's very much, I mean, we've got the experience and the engineering um, clout of being in, in the world's like, largest market for payments, which is the US, and bringing all that R&D and technology um, into the UK market. So... Um, if you look at everything that we've done in the, you know, the US and a lot of it, even what we've built out, quite a bit of that in the UK, invoices and virtual terminal. Um, and, you know, if you look in the US, we've got the Square for Restaurants app, Square for Retail app, going into verticalized points of sale, different versions of hardware. Um, so our terminal product has just been launched in the US. You don't need a mobile phone. It's an all-in-one uh, device, which is like very much looks like a more modern, beautiful version of, um, you know, usual card reader all in one. And so, um, you know, just bringing to market all that innovation. Uh, so that's what I'd say really differentiates us. And because we fully own end to end the software and the hardware, I don't, I'm not sure if that's the situation with IZ or not. I have to check, but um, Square does that. And so it's like fully integrated and, and works consistently and seamlessly. Like I've had a lot of customers. I was in a panel in January and one of our customers, Brew by Numbers, uh, had an iZettle product and uh, spoke to the audience about how the reporting and the analytics and the tools that um, he had now with Square were just really helping him grow his business. So, 
Yeah, it just it just really depends on the product and the team. I mean, um, Jack talks about and really um, implements this uh, idea of this ecosystem of startups in Square. So the cash team is a separate um, startup to and has its own kind of end to end full control of its destiny. Um, compared to the seller, we call it the seller organization. So that's the like the traditional point of sale and payment system. And then we've got another startup, which is basically um, the capital startup. And so um, Jack's idea is, which I think is really great, is like we need to be disrupting ourselves. Um, otherwise, someone is going to disrupt us. And so the company is very much um, run like that and increasingly so. So it just like it completely depends on, honestly, the the GM or, you know, their, their state of mind um, and how they're feeling about the product and, um, what, what the market fit is. So just, I would just say it just, it just depends. Um, but, you know, again, like because Square is a very um, customer-driven um, company, like what we do is like a lot of the time even the product managers or the engineering leads, they don't want to hear me talk about the needs of the customers. And so we actually have like different ways to get them the feedback originally if it's listening to calls or we do a product newsletter, which basically just quotes from sellers. And that's what we used to feed in and that feeds into the roadmap and product decisions, like much more powerful than me saying, I want, you know, Sephora Wiser in Germany. I need, if I want Sephora Wiser in Germany, I need to go to a bunch of German sellers, get quotes from it and then feed it back into those, into those teams. So, um, so does that kind of answer your question? It depends. Yeah. It's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just to backtrack quickly, mm. Melinda Roulette as a per- person, how, how do you focus on efficiency and you know, staying effective over such a long period of time? I mean, your CV is incredibly impressive. You know, now you're at the head of Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you focus on on a day-to-day basis? Uh, it really depends. As I, I was saying, yeah, like, you know, f- sorting out, like my last week was sorting out some uh, car parking spaces in Dublin because we were growing so quickly and the team have run out of them. And that's like, it's a big concern people have, which is which is fair. Um, we uh, uh, we had a regulator that we're working with um, because we're launching some new product lines and they're excited to understand how we operate, which was really great. Um, we, uh, you know, went to, I went to a bunch of partner meetings. Um, so thinking about how people uh, in the UK get access to, to financial services. And as you say, like not all of them are online or a lot of them are consumers. And so how do we work with other banks and um, people in the industry to distribute our products? So I went to a great meeting with some potential clients there. So just like, it just really depends, I think. Uh, staying focused, it's got to understand what your goals are. And so for us in Square, it's really about growing the market and growing the number of sellers uh, that we have, uh, which is our most important metric. Uh, it's not about um, you know, having to optimise for every sense of margin and it's not about, uh, you know, things that aren't growing customers, right? Um, and so really every day I try, the lens I try to put on something is, you know, how is this growing the market? And so getting car parking spaces in Dublin will grow the market because it keep my team happy and, um, and that, would be, that would be good for, for everything. So I guess that's just the lens. But I don't know, sometimes... You know, efficiency, try to be as efficient as you can, but I guess life is sometimes a bit messy and you have to compromise a bit. So, And having that flexibility, I guess, is important. Do you have a morning routine? Uh, no, I have, been, um, I have been trying to go to... Um, well, I'm training for the Hackney Half Marathon. So, And I got, my, I got the Square team involved in that. So, uh, yeah... We had a pub lunch and uh, <laughs> we had a pub lunch and I was I was talking about it. My friend pulled out and I said, "Was well, anyone want to join?" And a few people said yes, and so I held them to that actually. And so we've got about <laughs> eight people coming, uh, which should be quite fun. So 
Um, I did the course on Saturday, thankfully, so I know I know I can finish it. I'm not sure in what time or anything. I won't be setting the world on fire. But no, I just say to my team, look, I mean, you guys like I'm paying you for your your brains and your hearts, right? And so if you don't have to be at the office at 9 a.m., I mean, I don't care when you're here or when you leave, but just make sure you do your job. And so a lot of some of my team have very US facing roles. So they might opt to come in at 11 and stay till like seven or eight, depending on what happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're paying paying people. I know the engineers in San Francisco have all their own weird like hours and everything. Uh, so, you know, it just works. I mean, Jack's just, uh, you might've seen uh, on Twitter, uh, put out uh, two jobs. And I think uh, Jack's really interested in the future of work, which is like pretty interesting. Um, and the, the jobs can be anywhere in the world um, and you, need, you get paid in cryptocurrency. So he's looking for two people to help shape the future of, um, of Bitcoin. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, so we, we're a bit like, less flexible, I guess, on you know, anywhere in the world. But if, yeah, we're in Dublin and London and we're hiring. So if you guys are um, looking for some roles, um, definitely check out our website. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we've very much got that mentality at Square um, about uh, you know, allowing people to contribute in the way that best suits them. We also have this weird, um, well, not weird, it was, it's, it's, I really love it now, but it was strange in the beginning, document culture. So instead of a, a, a paper, a we'd have like all these PowerPoint slides and have to go through them all at the meeting. Um, at Square, you write a document and you literally write a prose document in Google Docs and that's what we use, even though we're a $30 billion listed company. Um, and it's really it's really great. I really like it. It's so much better than all the other stuff that like the older the older versions of products. And so, but yeah, you write a document and then everyone basically um, spends half, if it's an hour meeting. So if I'm doing the UK review with all the um, core team and Jack, you do half an hour of reading of the document and everyone tags people in or makes comments on the document. Um, so if we talk about sales or how did you achieve this result or you know, kudos or, you know, oh, this is a really interesting point and they can like link in someone from another team. And so we get this incredibly rich discussion and then half an hour later on the, in the doc, and then half an hour later, you have a chat about the doc. And so I think it's a really cool way that I can be in a meeting in San Francisco and I feel just as in, in London or in Dublin or wherever. And I can feel just as connected with everyone in the room as I you know, would be if it was in person, actually. So, um, yeah, so often if it's a really late meeting, I'll just stay and comment in the doc and then leave because, like, you know, that's where all the richness of discussion happens. So, yeah, it's a very uh, we have some good ways that we've evolved to make everyone feel as part of one and to be quite flexible in what people want to do. I think we have well, we do have unlimited leave so um you know as long as you do your job um you know you're allowed to it's unlimited leave so i'm lucky my team haven't pushed that one too far <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah yeah and i guess your job is to reinforce in those processes and potentially create more yeah well try to um you know process you only need so much process for the state of the how big you are so we don't have too much process but yeah some process can make things more efficient um but yeah, it just really depends on you know state of state of where things are. So, so I guess hiring is an incredibly salient topic for many here. Uh, what what are you looking for, particularly not not role specifically, mm. but in terms of people? Uh, yeah, so it just depends on the function. Um, generally, some experience is good, but um, I think just in terms of those things I said before, like you know, I, IQ is important. EQ, EQ is incredibly important. Um, you know, particularly when you do work for you know what is we're growing to be an international company, but still the US, um, very much a US core. So being able to influence people, you know, and not being in charge. So I, that's happened at PayPal. That happens at Square. Our engineers are, you know, not in the, in the UK at the moment. And so 
Um, you are having to use influencer persuasion and business cases and customer quotes to really, you know, mobilize the teams and get them excited about building things to the UK. So it's very important that you have those traits. I think resilience is a very big one that I talk to the team about. And so you have good days and bad days, but when you have a bad day, you just can't just like go into a room and cry for six hours. You need to like dust yourself off and, and get on with it. And when you're in a growing, very competitive market like the UK, you're going to have a amazing days where you you know win like a huge tender and like you you launch a new product then you have other days where you know the US team says they're not going to build that or you lose a tender to IZL who've done really well you know it just depends on you know the day right and so yeah having that resilience and just being able to adapt I think it's really great all you guys are coming here to learn to code which is such a great skill um to have uh and, and relearning, you have to be relearning all the time. And so, you know, someone who kind of comes and thinks they've learned everything and that's it, it's not really going to work. You're always going to have to be learning if it's about new geographies or new products and, and being able to adapt with change. And so if you're one day your boss might be this person, maybe it's another person, like, you know, you can't get upset about that. You just kind of deal with it. So people who are, yeah, quite resilient, um, you know, technology savvy is always a good one. Um, yeah, high IQ and EQ. Okay. EQ, IQ, flexibility, and resilience, guys. Uh, <laughs> Is that in like week seven of the course? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, again, I'm going to show you my age. So um, when I um, studied, I studied finance with law in Australia because you had to do another degree um, with law because what was happening, it was pe people were becoming lawyers after three years and no understanding of the world or liberal arts education, just like were apparently these awful humans. And so they made... <laughs> the, 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 the law schools all got together and said, okay, you need to do a joint degree in Australia at least. And so um, I did finance. And so we used to have um, Excel labs. So it's basically like once a month, we'd go into like, I'm not, like a, a, a room like this and there'd be like computers that you would boot up. Um, it'd take like a few minutes. And then you would have like a, a piece of paper where you had to like do your Excel class. And then like, it would be like 45 minutes. And that's all the stuff that you would do on finance and Excel. Think like each month. And so, yeah, so yeah, when I first worked at BCG and had to build an Excel model of like the airline industry, I was like, ah, oh. <laughs> <laughs> pretty like, I, it took me a lot of, it took me a lot of learning. So getting back to coding, I just wasn't, um, you know, I think you kind of gravitate towards what you, you can't be what you can't see. And I guess like for me, I saw LA Law and the, the, my role models were in business and things like that, right? I didn't really know any code, like even Mark Zuckerberg wasn't around, like, you know, Jack, you know, you didn't have this popular culture of coding and technology and everything like you do now. And so, yeah, I think it's a massive miss. Like maybe I'll, I was just looking at the classes, like maybe I should come. I, I saw there's a corporate one you can do. So I might get the team around to yeah. do a few days. It could be quite fun. Um, but yeah, I think it's a it's a really important skill to have. And even if you don't go into, um, you know, you don't become a coder or a technologist, um, being able to understand that thought process is really important. I remember at BCG, again, like the people who could build the huge models that the clients loved and they were always the ones doing super well was the engineers and the people who could code because they could think in terms of like very logical statements about things and you know, really apply a framework and a logic to problem solving. And I think that's what you guys are really getting, which will serve you well in anything you choose to do. So. So besides potentially coding here with Lewagen, is there anything that you're focused on learning in your very limited spare time? 
Uh, I was trying to learn French while I was in Luxembourg and uh, I tried quite hard. Um, I need to pick it up again now I've come to, to Square. Uh, but yeah, it was really, I found it really, really difficult. I think um, growing up in Australia, there, it's a very multilingual society, but um, I, I remember I learned Chinese for three years and that was my only education in foreign languages and so I didn't learn accents or didn't learn how to learn a language and so doing it I did it for about three years in Luxembourg and I just the accents my accents were terrible I'm going to the PayPal um, Paris office and I said um, bonsoir like good night to everyone <laughs> and, and the whole floor just erupted in laughter at me and I was like, it is bonsoir, and they're like, yeah, but your accent is so funny. <laughs> and yeah, so I'm still a bit traumatized by that, actually. So, but I need to pick it up again. Apparently, according to Duolingo, I'm 32% proficient in French, but I go. think that algorithm is like something, something wrong with that. I'm definitely not 32% proficient. <laughs> so, uh, I'm trying to learn that. Um, what else am I trying to learn? Uh, I'm trying to get back to reading. I've really struggled a bit. Um, I think I'm probably a victim, like everyone might be here with your smartphone and all the papers and everything and staying um, on top of Instagram, which, yeah, I mean, it's my guilty pleasure. But, um, yeah, it's just, and then, like, trying to actually read a book, like, it's, um, it can be quite difficult. And so I'm just trying to get back to, to reading a bit. Um, uh, so that's another, another challenge, yeah. So interesting you actually speak about some of the like, actual problems you have. Because I think everyone here idolizes you and your position, right? You're at the top of the world from our perspective. Right. So like, what? <laughs> How about you even drinking? I even yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, there, is there anything else that is really difficult once you, you know, reach this level of seniority in a large organization? Yeah, it's really hard. Like, it's, it's really hard. I think when you're um, more junior, you can just do a good job and... Um, yeah, you you can just do a very good job, and uh, you can focus on your job. And generally, there's a good link between achieving results, you know, and I mean, getting ahead. I think once you're more senior, it becomes. I mean, in any organisation, um, it becomes very polit- political. Some organisations are more political than others, but you know, you're navigating different things, uh, and so. Yeah, I think um, I read a LinkedIn quote about your career and I think it's, I quite like it. And they say about your careers, particularly when you're more senior, it's like you're married to someone, your employer. And so like some days when I'm I'm not married, but I guess in a marriage, you really love your spouse and you wake up every day and you're like, oh my God, this person's amazing. They're so cool. I'm madly in love with them. Like, and it's great. Um, And then sometimes you wake up and you're like, oh my God, I hate them. They didn't take the garbage out. They didn't feed the dog. Like they haven't picked up the kids. Like they're the worst person in the world. I'm going to leave them. Uh, And then sometimes you can imagine there's a hot kind of um, person who walks past and tries to get your attention. So that's kind of like the startup. It's kind of sexy and cool. But are you going to stay with them? Are you going to stay in this like relationship that you kind of know, but that has its up and downs? And so I think that's really what um, careers are like. And and I think every day you have to be like, well, do I want to stay in this like marriage? Or, you know, is this go for maybe this hotter thing? Or maybe I just need to get divorced and be by myself for a while and figure out what I want to do. So... Um, so definitely all my you know, stints at all companies have had that kind of, yeah, oh, my God, I love this company. Oh, my God, I want to kill everyone. You know, it's definitely, you know, it's like anything in life. Like you have hard times and good times and you just got to navigate through it. So, Which sub-area of fintech? Um, I really think something very interesting is insurance, personally. Um, so if you think about um, how you buy insurance, I mean, you must buy, I mean, you might have bike insurance, have house insurance, you might have some health insurance. 
travel insurance. They're all pretty much through different providers. They're a little bit paper-based. Like you might go into compare the market to buy, like I bought um, some home insurance the other day, but they couldn't complete the form online. So I had to ring up and then they have a paper-based, they send it to you in a few hours. And so I don't really think um, you know, the disruption has really come to the insurance market. And so that could be quite interesting. Imagine you just had an app you just go, okay, I want health insurance, like car insurance is how much it is, and bang, 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 it's all there. And then when you have to renew the premiums, they're all in the app and everything. So I know some companies doing in the US like Lemonade, which are quite interesting. So that's definitely a big area um, I think could be a big uh, big change on both the consumer and business side. I think lots of you read about InsurTech and it's all about blockchain and underwriting, which I think is quite interesting, but how do you deliver a better experience to the consumer? I think that could definitely be an area of fintech. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the one I don't think. I think there's lots of other companies. I mean, we, we see it. So we're on Tottenham Court Road, our office, and one of our um, windows like basically faces the street. And so you see all the buses come past every day. And, uh, you know, you've got so many fintechs in the UK just like fighting for things, which I think is really great because it's really bringing services to markets that haven't been served. Like you think of like lending, like an iWalker, like getting into loans to small businesses, funding circle. I think there's still a lot of um, space to be taken up there. PayPal's doing loans to consumers um, so, and, and small businesses, which are segments that... Um, the banks haven't really been able to service very well if you're a small customer and need a small loan. Um, so that's interesting. Um, you think of all the business banks, uh, we're partnering with quite a few like Cash Plus, if you think of Tide. Um, so I think there's still a lot of runway to, to, go, to go on those um, industries as well in terms of fintech. But um, yeah, I think insurance is the more interesting one that no one's started playing in yet. So how do you think you would attack that segment first? Would you go into business uh, business insurance? Well, I think one of the reasons why it hasn't been tackled, to be fair, is it's quite complicated and there's a lot of players. So I think like you'd have to just hire someone who knows a lot about insurance <laughs> to teach me more about it. I did a bit at, um, at Lloyd's, uh, but yeah, I still have a lot to learn about that segment. So yeah, it could be interesting. But... So what are the, what's on the roadmap? You described it a bit earlier, but for mm. the next, just say, year or five years, you know, what can we expect from Square? Can we see a, will we see a banking license out of Lithuania, like Revolut or? Uh, I'm not allowed to say. Of course. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but um, I think if you have a look, probably the best clue I can give you is if you have a look on our website in the US and see all of the products we have there, um, you know, that's probably the natural ground for what we would focus on bringing to Europe, so. Yeah, no, there's a lot on this actually. Um, I think some. I was I was listening on the radio. Some Scandinavian countries are actually forcing um, some businesses or forcing businesses to accept cash, um, as well as cards, because like some like some economies have gone just completely cashless. And so, um, we really believe it's an and not or situation. Like that businesses should accept cash. Uh, as well as cards. I mean, but if you look at the stats in the UK today, there are 5.7 million small businesses and 3 million of them still don't accept cards. And so it's really, you know, we haven't really reached, reached that tipping point at all. I mean, in London, you see everyone takes cards, but you go outside of London and they really don't. I mean, we were in, I brought the whole team to Oxford in January for a big offsite we had, and we were running around like doing treasure hunts in, in Oxford. But like one of the things that everyone saw was like, even in town like Oxford, which is like big, uh, you know, student town, lots of foreign foreigners and everything is still like very, very cash oriented. And so 
Um, there's a heap of opportunities. Small businesses are missing out on sales. Um, we know when we've introduced our square to, say, the Hollywell High Street, a lot of um, businesses have seen their takings go by 30%. Um, and so these are just sales that people are missing out on by not being in the economy. So I don't think cash will have a place for quite a while and is not going anywhere and, um, you know, should still be a part of the economy. But the more we can help people with accessible card payments, the better. It's also difficult because in a lot of these communities, um, we're speaking to MP in Oxford, um, she was, she's really excited about us partnering with um, Oxford actually to deliver card services in lots of areas of Oxford outside of the town, the banks have taken away the card machines. Oh, they've only introduced like for pay card machines. And so that really kind of stops often cash being an option. And so, yeah, having digital payments can really help these people. So. Yeah, so um, I mean, it's all again through people and, and networking, which is kind of how you find out about these things. But um, I was at a um, business school. Uh, we we get together like once every few years and um, go on holidays somewhere fun. So we're in Italy actually, and um, we usually have some people come and talk to us about things. And so we had this friend of a friend come and speak about her startup. It's called um, Find My Lost. And so basically, if you think of um, you think of any big public service, if you think of um, like an airport or a train station, Paddington train station, um, they all have to run a lost property department. And uh, guess how most of them are running it through like spreadsheets and just like really antiquated kind of technologies, paper books, like, you know, one umbrella, you know, black, you know, kind of go through it. And so her and her team are really, they've started in Italy, but they're actually um, speaking to a lot of big companies in the UK, they're really um, bringing technology and automation. So they've got APIs and databases to help um, these, these companies manage all this lost property. I mean, people lose a lot. And, um, and then on the consumer side, there's an app basically where if you lose something in Milan train station, you can go in and find what it was. And I thought, that's really cool. Um, so I've invested a little bit of money in that. And then um, I've got another friend who um, is an ex-recruiter but I uh, got sick of that and started her own company called Juggle Jobs. And it's really around um, flexible working and helping women who, um, particularly women, but not only women, um, people who want flexible working, marrying that with companies that need flexible workers, if that's for um, like a project or, you know, three days a week. And so, yeah, so that's a really exciting startup as well that she's done, like building this like marketplace. Um, but yeah, I get her updates every month and yeah, very, very startup, like, lost the CTO because he did something else and then, you know, needs to, you know, hiring and growing like crazy. So, yeah, they're, they're two really great companies. So. From speaking before, we, uh, you seem to be very focused on women empowerment and, you know, what lessons would you pass on to just say younger women who are encountering the glass ceiling and, you know, how do you break it and how would they break it just like you did? Um, <laughs> I think the persistence is really hard. I mean, um, there's a quote from uh, Indra, I'll probably not pronounce her name wrong, Norali, the ex-Pepsi CEO, which I always like um, kind of internalised. I think uh, if I think about my career, I've always taken the hard projects that the boys didn't want. Um, and so, yeah, and so kind of often, like particularly at PayPal, there were a few times when there was just no one, there was a really hard thing to be done and no one would touch it. Um, and so uh, for political reasons, or was just really difficult. And so maybe just out of sometimes I think stupidity, honestly, or just like, oh yeah, I'll do that, like sign up for it and, um, yeah, and, and manage to make it successful. So I think sign up for women, like sometimes you have to do the harder things to get 
recognized. I think that's something I would um, suggest, uh, even into men as well. Um, but do the hard things. Always be thinking about what are your boss's challenges and, and how can you help them. So I remember my boss had a challenge um, with a startup that they had to acquire or we acquired and then integrating it. No one wanted to like lead from our side on the integration. And so um, I was kind of helping him with that and it wasn't really a formal role, but then we were in Paris and like someone asked what was happening with the startup and um, my boss at the time said, oh, Melinda's leading that now. I'm like, oh, okay, thanks. Like that's how I'm, but, no, I'm getting new projects. It's like official, right? Get promoted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that got me a lot of audience and the CEO and like, you know, and so it was incredibly difficult and incredibly hard, but um, really learned a lot and that's how you make the big changes. Um, yeah. So you connected to your roots in Australia at all? Are you doing anything still in Australia or are you completely focused on, on Europe? Yeah, so I do a lot in Australia. Um, I'm on the board of Square in Australia. And so we have an Australian entity there. Um, so I was at a board meeting at 2 a.m. the other night, <laughs> dialing in, turn the camera off, laying in bed, um, <laughs> trying to contribute something. So still connected through that, which is great. I mean, the Square Australia team are really amazing, uh, very scrappy, very innovative. Um, I've learned a lot from the, the head of Australia, Ben. He's fantastic. Um, uh, I, I um, help my uh, undergraduate university. And so um, in, a lot of you might be from America where um, they're used to very much having alumni networks and, uh, you know, everyone's affiliated with the colleges and football and basketball and you're, oh, Columbia, like, you know, alumni, or I'm from, like, Brown or whatever, but we don't really have that culture in Australia. Like, everyone kind of goes to university, then forgets about it, really. And so um, what um, my university is trying to do, UNSW, is... Um, create more of a sense of alumni and uh, in particular it kind of gets down to funding because in Australia the government has cut funding to universities and so they're having to become more like the American model where they've never had any funding so they're very good at like you know getting money from everyone so we're trying to connect that network and so I, I'm on the board of that and so we do a lot of um, activities and fundraising to just connect all the students we have in the ex-students we have in London I think we have 3,000 alumni from the Sydney University based in London. So it's been really fun, like, reconnecting with them. And that takes me back to Australia a bit. I met the Prime Minister of Australia at a UNSW event um, last August. And then a few days later, Australian politics is very cutthroat. <laughs> and so, yeah, he was out in, like, three days later. <laughs> so I'm glad I got to post it on social media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's all that matters on the Instagram. Yeah, so, no, so, no Australia's a great place and... Um, I mean, at PayPal and same at Square, it's very much uh, my bit of a microcosm. A lot of, you think of contactless payments. I mean, you know, Australia looks at us and goes, how are they so behind? I think 80% of transactions are now contactless in Australia and we're catching them in the UK. So, um, yeah, contactless hasn't even really made it big in America yet. So it's very much a, this is a smaller population. Like, you can see innovation quite quickly. Or did they leapfrog uh, card payments, just like China, or how did it work? Oh, just contactless. I think, oh, every, okay, yeah, I it just started, it. it got a lot of traction really quickly, yeah. Thanks for listening to Lewagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe by hitting the subscribe button.